Welcome to Shelter in Place, a podcast about finding daily sanity in a world that feels increasingly insane. Coming to you from Oakland, California, I'm Laura Joyce Davis. Our family was supposed to be leaving today for a trip across the country. It was a trip we'd been anticipating for more than a year. Let me rephrase that. It was a trip I'd been anticipating for at least that long. Longer if I put it in context. I come from a big family, a close family of doctors. Growing up, there was never any pressure to go into medicine. There didn't need to be. Medicine was in the books on our shelves, in the conversations at the dinner table, in the middle of the night emergency cases that would call my dad away, in the dreams my siblings had for themselves for as long as I can remember. The path that led my family to medicine was one carved out by my dad, who is an anomaly of the human race, kind and selfless to a fault, the kind of person all of his children grew up wanting to become. My mom was not a doctor, but she should be awarded an honorary degree for the decades of conversations she endured about hospitals and surgery. She was the one-woman support team that made my dad's job possible. I have vivid memories of one of my brothers saying at age 9 or 10 that he wanted to someday work with my dad. At the time, the dream seemed fanciful. But today, my dad and brother are partners at the same hospital. The only person not trekking along the trail to medicine was me. One of my brothers had a brief stint as a Broadway actor, but eventually even he became a doctor. When we were young, while my siblings were placing stethoscopes on their stuffed animals, I was off in the woods picking wildflowers. My granddaddy, who liked to talk, rarely spoke to me without prefacing whatever he was about to say with the condemnation that I was a dreamer. The implication that this was a bad thing, a useless thing, did not escape me. Space cadet was a phrase thrown around playfully in my family, always applied to me. I should stop here and say that I did not grow up in a home where I was lacking in support or affirmation. My parents told me I could be whatever I wanted to be as long as I could pay my bills. My siblings and I fought a lot, but I knew that I was loved unconditionally. I never doubted that my family would be there for me. But in some fundamental way, I didn't fit in. As I got older, the differences that were joked about when I was a child began to cause real conflict. Looking back, I can see that most of that conflict can be traced back to the decisions I was making. As a teenager, I skipped out on family gatherings in favor of spending time with my friends, who eagerly read the novellas I was penning into spiral notebooks by flashlight late at night. In high school, I found a new family in the cross-country team. My senior year, I missed my brother's college graduation because it was the same weekend as the track meet that would qualify me for state, where my performance would earn me a university scholarship. In college, my family went on vacations without me because my spring break didn't line up with my brothers, and I couldn't miss a week of track practice with my college team. At the time, those choices felt like the only option. Only now can I look back and see that in pursuing my passions, I was distancing myself from my family. Even when I understood this, I kept charting the course I'd mapped out. This might have been self-absorption. Probably, at least partly, it was. 
but it was also the difference I'd been feeling since childhood, one I couldn't stop pressing into even though it left me feeling like an outsider. There were times when I tried to reconcile this difference, to pretend it wasn't there. For one semester in college, despite never having any previous interest in medicine, I took a full course load of pre-med classes, determined that I would become a sports medicine doctor. It seemed like maybe this could be the perfect marriage between my obsession with running and my love for my family. The first day of class, my biology professor got up in front of the auditorium and announced that this was a weed-out class. Turns out I was one of the weeds, despite my brother tutoring me for hours over the phone nightly. I worked harder for that C than I had for any A before or since. The next semester, I took a creative writing class at the suggestion of a friend. My ears buzzed and my head felt light as I sat in my very first writing workshop. I sat around a table with 10 other students as my teacher explained the elements of a good story. A story was not a story without conflict. The more impossible the situation, the better. There was the climax of that conflict, and finally, the resolution. A resolution is not necessarily a happy ending. Usually, the story is better if it's not. The important thing is that the character has had some epiphany, some realization that changes things, either in the world or inside of them. I didn't want the class to end. I had the feeling I'd longed to experience with my own family. I was home. When I called my parents to tell them I was switching my major to creative writing, they expressed concern about how I would support myself, but didn't try to talk me out of it. When I got into an MFA program in creative writing, they celebrated and helped Nate and me pack up our lives to move to California. None of us knew that that move would stick. Oakland isn't always an easy place to live, but it suits us. We're surrounded by people who spent their lives feeling different, who found in this city a place that would welcome them. It's a city where my differences don't feel like a bad thing, where they don't make me feel like an outsider. We've been here for 16 years, but it's still a rare visit when my parents don't ask me when we're moving back to the Midwest. When I was younger, these conversations used to frustrate me. But lately, they just make me cry. Because I love my family. They're some of the best people I know. I wish I could see them more. We have our differences, but when push comes to shove... They've got my back in this world in a way that few people do. I still long for deeper connection with them. I still crave their approval and affirmation. I still hope for opportunities for us to be together, not just over the holidays when stress is high or during summer visits when they're all busy with work, but in rare moments when we can all unplug from the paths we are traveling on and sit in each other's company. But also, being with them is sometimes complicated. Entering into the lives they have built together, lives where they share in common not just their geography but their profession, I feel my differences even more acutely than I did as a kid. They've traveled the world together for work. They've shared life daily. They have whole photo albums full of memories I am not a part of. It's easier to pretend that this isn't true from 2,000 miles away. When we get each other in small doses over the phone, 
or in the instances where one of them will visit and enter into our lives for a few days, the differences aren't so obvious. For my 40th birthday, I asked my siblings if they would go backpacking with me in the Boundary Waters. The conversation never even got off the ground. Probably, it never will. Most of us have kids. We're all busy. Our schedules are almost impossible to align. But then, a little over a year ago, my parents requested a family trip for their 50th wedding anniversary. We picked a neutral location so no one would have to host, purchased plane tickets, and reserved an Airbnb. Everyone got the time off approved a year in advance. It seemed that at last the stars were aligning. Even a few weeks ago, I held on to the hope that maybe it would still happen. All over the country, restrictions were being lifted little by little. Planes were taking extra measures to sanitize and clean. I had a plan to schedule episodes ahead of time so I could be present with my family while I was with them. But as the date of departure neared, I grew more uneasy about the wisdom of the trip. We had two flights, a layover, and a rental car drive to get there, and a full day of travel on each end. My older two kids might be able to keep their masks on for the trip, but our three-year-old spends every plane flight crawling around the floor, sticking her fingers in her mouth, touching everything. I wasn't worried about us getting sick so much as I was about picking something up during our travel and passing it on to my parents, who are in their 70s, or my grandmother, who's 97. For a week straight, my family discussed the trip, weighing the risks against the opportunity. We considered driving the 35 hours it would take to get to our destination, taking a train to Chicago and then driving from there, renting an RV. All of the options were outrageously expensive, logistical nightmares that sounded miserable with three young kids and would mean that we'd show up sleep-deprived, stressed out, and potentially carrying COVID-19. In the end, we decided not to go. We felt on a gut level that it was the right decision, and my family agreed. I have regretted that decision every day since, because I knew without asking that the trip would happen without us. Our absence was not a reason for cancellation. The rest of my family had planned on driving all along. They could easily quarantine. This past week, a friend suggested that I go alone with the older two kids, an option that had not occurred to us before, but that Nate and I both liked. We talked through the logistics, still hopeful that it might be possible. But the next morning, I awoke before dawn and texted my mom the idea, hoping against hope that we could still go. She said the plane tickets purchased with miles had been canceled. She did not think we should come. She thought we'd made the right decision. And she said that I was doing beautiful work on the podcast. I told her thanks. And then I wept. I'm grieving the loss of this trip, but also the metaphor it is of the distance that has been there for a lifetime. This is just the latest decision I've made that leads me further down the road I've taken. In my darker moments, the lie I believe is that in a family of essential workers, I alone am non-essential. I was not necessary to make this trip happen. This past week, 
Even as I felt the pain of difference in my own family, I've watched the agony of division in my country. In light of all that is happening in our world, I'm wary of making any kind of comparison. I am not suggesting that I understand what it's like to be a black person in this country, or that my pain right now is the same pain that many others have been feeling for centuries. I will never fully understand what it is to be raised in a country with laws that name you as non-essential. But the lie I've often believed about my own family is one our country has held on to for too long, that difference is bad. During the Zoom call my family had on my birthday this year, I listened as various different family members said some version of the same thing that over the years, my differences had pushed our family to grow and change in ways that were often uncomfortable, but ultimately positive. I had introduced them to ideas and experiences that they wouldn't have otherwise had. I sat there and cried the whole time they were talking, because I needed those affirmations. And also, it's still hard for me to believe them. Even in the worst moments, I've known that my family's intentions toward me were good. I cannot say the same for my country's intentions toward all of its people. At least part of the challenge for our country moving forward is accepting that we are never going to be a homogenous people. We are not a post-racial society. We can resist or ignore each other's differences and see them as a wedge between us, or we can celebrate them, recognizing that we are all better because of them. It's going to take a ton of work. There are going to be things we have to fix, wounds to be healed, whole systems that need to be torn down and rebuilt with a new vision. Even as I am missing my family this week, wishing I could be with them, I'm also feeling grateful to them. They've taught me that it's okay that I'm different, even though sometimes those differences are hard to accept. Ultimately, our family is better because of them. The daily sanity I'm trying to accept today is that this is actually true, not just for me, but for our country. I know all of the reasons to be cynical right now. I feel that cynicism sometimes too. But my daily sanity is a dogged hope that I want to invite you to embrace with me. That we can press into the differences, to the truth that all of us together make this country and our communities better. I'm still grieving not being with my family. I still sometimes wish I could erase our differences I'm grateful to my family that they're not asking me to, that they understand that even though it's painful sometimes, those differences have defined me. They've given me purpose and hope during times when I found it impossible to fit in. I'm pushing myself to take steps to make sure that others in this country know how valued and essential they are. I'm looking for one thing every day to make our country a better place for everyone. There are so many wonderful resources out there right now for how you can take part in this fight yourself. But in case you need more, I'm including some in my show notes for today. 
I hope you'll join me in this daily sanity of persistent hope in the celebration of our differences. If you found today's episode meaningful, I hope you'll share it with a friend and subscribe wherever you listen. If you listen on iTunes, rating and reviewing this podcast helps others find it too. As always, you can find more information about today's episode in my show notes at laurajoycedavis.com. Shelter in Place is sponsored by Brick and Mortar and Delta Wines. I am so grateful to be sponsored by a small local business that isn't just committed to making great wines, but to making this world a better place. Get 10% off your order when you use the promo code SHELTER at brickandmortarwines.com or winesforchange.com. When you buy wine, you support this show and also other businesses that are working toward more sustainable living. The Shelter in Place music was composed by Chase Horseman at Reactor Productions, and the Shelter in Place artwork was created by Sarah Edgel. Until tomorrow, this is Shelter in Place. I'm Laura Joyce Davis.